Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. All right, there we are. (laughs) It's one in every group. Um, Well, it's certainly good to be with you this morning. Um, One of the things that I appreciated while being on sabbatical was attending church and just attending, like to worship God and not have 20,000 things going on in my brain. It reminded me of that this morning because when we came in, we realized that the camera that we use for live streaming is not working. And so I spent the first half hour troubleshooting something and my mind was in 12 different places at the same time. And then we're singing and I'm thinking, oh, I got to preach the word pretty soon, so I better look at my notes again. And so if, if, if I look a little distracted for the first couple minutes, it's probably because I'm trying to edit my mind while I go along, but I am looking forward to our time in the Word. Um, We're going to start a new series this morning in the book of Jude, so if you want to turn there. And because this is a spiritual task ahead of us, we need God's Spirit, I need God's Spirit to help. And so would you join me as we pray to God and asking him to open our hearts. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have to be gathered in your name. I pray it's an opportunity that we, we do not take lightly, but Father, that we understand the uh, seriousness and sincerity and, and, and also the, um, the cost involved for us to be gathered here the cost of your son. God, we pray that in our time in your word this morning, your spirit would teach us that, God, you would use me as a vessel of your truth. And Father, um, we pray that as we hear your word, that we would respond, not just in gratitude, but in an expectant faith in what you will do. We are grateful, Father, for your promises. They stand the test of time. Your word is eternal. It is settled in heaven. And so now, God, speak to us your truth for your glory. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. There's an ever-increasing battle around us in the culture that we live in to know who we are. Identity seems to be the question of the day. Who are we? Who is mankind? Where do they fit? We look at it in a corporate way, but even more so, individually, society is dealing with the the question, who am I? Where do I belong? How do I fit? in the world that I live in. And since the dawn of time, mankind has been in a search to understand their identity. Now, while culture today is wrestling with these questions, it's not that brand new of a problem or a challenge because since the very first humans, they've been struggling with the questions, searching for the questions, who am I? Where do I belong in the world that I live in? 
But in our culture, because this is the culture we live in, this is the culture that we see and experience, we've seen the tragic consequences of people that live out the motto, follow your heart, and if it feels good, do it. I would love to say that the church has been insulated by the destructive thinking that comes with that kind of thinking, but we haven't. In fact, lines have been drawn in the sand. And culture is shouting, you are either with us or against us. And the church is increasingly facing pressure to cave when it comes to these cultural norms, which at the expense of biblical truth, the church has decided to give in to be more culturally relevant. The witness of the church is being torn apart in a battle for the answer to the question of identity and acceptance. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay, some of your heads are down and maybe you're just thinking, ah, he, he's out to lunch, so. But these are the questions that we're wrestling with. Once large and influential ministries for the sake of the gospel are a shell of themselves as a result of them caving in to cultural norms. We often wonder why in the Western culture the message of the gospel is largely diminished. Why the effective work of the church in its community is often not even just overlooked, but not present. And it's because we're forsaking what God has said in fear of people not wanting to join us in this wonderful journey of the faith because it might hurt their feelings. You don't have to travel very far, even in our own community, to see the tragic outcome of ministries who once were strong and vibrant but now are a shell of themselves because they have followed culture versus standing firm on the Word of God. I think about these things a lot because as a pastor, I I care about the community I live in. I care about the world that we live in. I care about how we are to be a light and salt and how we are to um, be a witness I care for the people that I live around that are caught in this, it seems like a a runaway train down a track that is going to just end in trouble as they follow their heart, as they give in to the pressures of this world, as they live out, if it feels good, do it. And I often can think in my isolated, siloed view, God, are we the only people that have ever thought this way have been as a believer, frustrated and concerned. And God gently reminds me, no. He says, you're not the only ones. In fact, God has a lot to say in His Word about the kinds of things that we're seeing in the world that we live in. This kind of thinking isn't new. And it isn't a new dangerous attack being unleashed on the church. For almost 2,000 years, the church has been dealing with those who wish 
to pervert the truth of God and teach a gospel that is absent of sin and punishment, atonement and forgiveness, reconciliation and hope. The early church, at least by the end of the first century into the second century, so like 100 AD on, was dealing with a heretical movement called Gnosticism. And some of you may have heard that if you've done any kind of Bible studies through the early church letters that Paul wrote to Philippi or Colossae or Galatia or any of those places. This, this thought, this, this, I guess, not just thought, but this brand of thinking, this brand of religious thinking comes from a Greek word, gnosis, which means to have knowledge. And so Gnosticism, or the Gnostics, taught that all of the material world that we live in is evil. The material world is evil. And as such, all natural distinctions are evil as well. All natural distinctions. Think with me through that. All natural distinctions of how we're made. Of what our gender is of who we are to, in God's design, live with and start families with. The Gnostics stressed that the spirit of man is good. And this is where Gnosticism, coming from the Greek root of gnosis, meaning knowledge, finds its root, that the spirit is good and that God has given special knowledge Special knowledge to enable people to understand the human condition. Special knowledge like hidden secret knowledge. And how did they find this hidden and secret knowledge? Well, they, they did not live by the standards of the material world. What they did was in this pursuit of special knowledge, they just gave in to their spirit, to their flesh. Or, yeah, the, the, the immaterial fleshly sinful desires they gave in to love whoever you want to love be whoever you want to be and this was a heretical way of thinking that came from people that first aligned themselves with the church this wasn't an outside cult looking in these were people that said at at least at one point they began their their journey in churches like ours and through their study of scripture they've come to the understanding that the pursuit of their affections the the immaterial desires were more important than anything else and that is how you find knowledge with god we're going to see it in this book that we're looking at But can you already begin to see how something that was a problem 2,000 years ago is not so much a problem or a, a different problem than it is today? I talk about my kids a lot. I did last week and I am this week. The world they're living in scares me to death. And they don't even understand it because it's the world they're growing up in. As they are coming home and and telling me some of the crazy things that they're observing 
in their school. It's like, how on earth did we get there? And the spoiler alert is, this isn't anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. We've been searching. Mankind has been on a desperate search to figure out who they are. And if we do not come to the understanding of agreeing and aligning ourselves with who God says we are as declared in His Word, we're not just a little bit off. We are so far off that we will never be able to live under the joy of knowing Him because we're going to be pursuing things that He never meant for us to pursue. All under this adage of, I'm just going to be who I'm created to be. And who they're created to be in their mind is not even close to who God has made them to be. This is a problem of great proportion for churches. Because there are people, I can guarantee, that have sat under our ministry and that will come and sit under our ministry in the days and weeks and months and years to come that will walk into this place with the question, who am I and where do I belong? And sometimes, because we have become afraid and silent, unable to answer those questions for them, they will leave here thinking, well, they didn't give me the answer, so I must have to find it out myself. This isn't anything new. Terms are fluid. Gender's fluid. People are making choices under the banner. This is my truth. Just be yourself. And any time we try to say that there is an intelligent, perfect design because there is an intelligent, perfect designer, we are put on the cancel culture hit list. And so here we are beginning a new study in a little obscure book that is tucked into the end of the New Testament. And the words we will study for the next few weeks shout to us to stand firm in the faith and keep our eyes fixed on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Church, we're going to see over the next few weeks, and Angela was asking me earlier this week, she's like, how long is it going to take you to preach through Jude? It's only 25 verses, and I thought, I don't know, 25, 26 weeks. (laughs) Um, It's not going to take that long. But the one thing that we see, and it's going to be the main theme, and we're going to hit it next week as we look again at this book, the main theme that Jude is wanting his readers to understand is that our faith in Jesus Christ is a faith worth fighting for. It's a faith worth fighting for. We live in a world that is upside down, and Jude is saying, keep your eyes fixed on the hope that is to come. As a side, as I was thinking about um, sermon series, it took everything inside of me to not call this series, Hey Jude. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a bad joke. I, know. I just didn't want to pay any royalties to the Beatles. Uh, the Ladies Cafe did a study on Jude. Was it last fall? 
I think it was last fall, it was very recently, and Angela was saying it was one of her favorite studies that uh, she's done with the ladies. Uh, So if you've participated in that study, I just ask that you be gracious as you compare my messages with what you learned in the ladies' Bible study. And if you can't, there are other places for you to serve right now in the church, so (laughs) feel free to do that. Um, But what I... What I shared with you just a few minutes ago is that this letter in front of us is a letter of challenge written to warn us from the dangerous false teachers that were coming into the church and teaching a false gospel. It's written to warn us. Like, in the chronology of New Testament history, and it goes along with the Bible in the way that we have organized it, in these general epistles, these general letters... You have the letters of First and Second Peter and Jude. And it's, it's easy to see that there is some kind of compendium existing between the letters of Peter and First and Second Peter and the letter that Jude wrote. Because in Second Peter, Second Peter warns us that false teachers are coming, and Jude says, "They're here. They're already here. Like in this warning written to caution us from the dangerous false teachers that were coming, there is this idea as we we read in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They're already here. They're already in the assembly, and they are teaching a gospel contrary to the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. These teachers were apostate. Now that word means that they had defected from the true biblical faith. The world is attacking a biblical understanding of life. And we need to protect the faith. We need to guard the faith. We need to stand firm in the faith. We cannot be shaken. Church, we cannot be shaken. It's truly a faith worth fighting for. The letter, as most of the letters in the New Testament, begins in a customary way. Letters from the first century world often begin with the author introducing himself, stating his background, and then offering a salutation. And that's what we have this morning. That's what we're going to look at in this introduction. In Jude 1, notice I didn't say chapter 1, there's only one chapter. So in Jude 1, this is what we read. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so at the outset, at least we know who wrote the book, who wrote the letter. We know his name is Jude. But the name Jude was a common name. It was a common name. Hebrew name in the first century world. The Greek formal name of Jude is Judas. Well, we know a Judas, right? I mean, we know a couple Judases in, in the Gospels, but we know one specifically, the one that had betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, handed him over to the authorities, and then he ended up hanging himself and throwing himself off a cliff. We know that Judas, Iscariot, So we know that it's not him. But this name, Judas, has a Hebrew counterpart. And we know this name as well. The the Hebrew counterpart of the Greek name Judas is Judah. 
And the name Judah comes from the tribe of Israel, one of Jacob's sons, who through Judah, it is promised that through his descendants would come the Messiah, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah. But there's more to this Jude. This Jude says he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant. And he's the brother of James. Now let's look at the latter description first in, in Jude saying that he is the brother of James. In the first century world, as they were writing letters, often a writer to an audience would share a connection that would convey his credentials. If he didn't know the people really that he was writing to, he would say, okay, this is who I am and this is who I know. Jude is writing that he is the brother of James. Now there are a few James mentioned in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John, but we know that he died early. And there's a James that we read about in the Gospels that we're in contact with throughout the rest of the New Testament. And it's almost certain that this James that Jude mentions as being the brother of was the leader of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15. He's the same James that was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13, 55, we read, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. We said, right, the name Judas is the same name as Jude. Now here is what we know about these brothers, the family of Jesus, as he's ministering on the earth for the time that he was with us. They didn't believe in him. In John 7, 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. But something changed along the way. Something changed in their lives where these brothers that lived and grew up in the home as their Messiah, who didn't believe in him at first, came to a belief. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, we read that after the resurrection... Jesus appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles. He appeared to James and to the apostles after the resurrection. We may assume that he also appeared to Jude. But here's something interesting. After his resurrection, around his ascension, so some 40 days We read in Acts chapter 1, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That his brothers, sometime in the window of his resurrection and ascension, had come to a saving knowledge, a believing knowledge of who their brother is, and they gathered with the early believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, waiting for the next thing to happen. And the next thing was Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit coming down and filling them with power. And those group of 120 witnesses in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 were the people that set the world on fire for Jesus Christ. We also read in a 
kind of a vague mention. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9.5, the Apostle Paul says that the brothers of Jesus were involved in an itinerant ministry. So in 1 Corinthians 9.5, this is what Paul says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter? So just in a vague reference, we, we begin to put some connections together that as Paul is writing about how, he can, how people should be conducting themselves in ministry, he just makes this failed reference like the apostles and the brothers of the Lord who are involved in ministry, gospel ministry, they can, do, they can take a believing wife with them. So he's defending that, and he, he just, by assumption, just says, hey, the brothers are already serving. They've done it. And so Judas, who is Jude, was likely involved in an early first century gospel ministry, proclaiming the good news that his brother is the true Messiah. Now, so here's the question I had while studying the text and putting some of these connections together. Why didn't Jude just come out and say he's the Lord's half-brother? Wouldn't that have been a lot easier? I mean, he said he's James's brother. Why didn't he just say I'm, I'm Jesus's brother? If he said that, then it would be simple to accept his authority. He says in verse 17 of his very own letter, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like he even, he doesn't even consider himself an apostle. So he, you know, I would, if I was in his shoes, I would just say, the brother of Jesus. But notice how he refers to himself. He's not only the brother of James, he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant. It's the Greek word doulos. A doulos is a slave. You know, bondservant, we think, okay, that, that sounds okay and acceptable. Uh, the, the reality of the word is that he's a slave. The term Jude used is not diakonos, which means servant. He didn't just say he's a servant of Jesus. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus. He did not commence the letter by emphasizing the privilege of his brotherly relationship with Jesus Christ, but he wrote writing about his submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say to these people, hey, listen to what I have said because I grew up in the home with Jesus. He says, I'm letting you know from the, from the start, everything that I have to say is because I am rightly aligned to a great Savior named Jesus, and I am his slave. This man, Judas, who is Jude, submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In this sense, Jude was like every other Christian. And yet the term doulos, which means bondservant, also designates the honor of serving as Jesus Christ's slave. It's an honor to be called a doulos. It's an honor to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this, church. Is the yoke of our Savior hard and punishing? Please say no. Thank you. This sermon was about to go off in a completely different direction. 
It's not. Right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. For us who are his followers, who are his servants, those who have trusted in what he has done for us as he has died on the cross to pay for our sins, those who have been invited into this great and glorious and grand relationship with him, isn't it our joy to say that he is our master and we gladly are his slaves, that we are his due loss? And so in this sense, Jude is just like us. And yet he sees the honor of being called the Lord's slave. Now we see this in Scripture. Those called to special service in the Old Testament were often identified as a slave of the Lord. There's Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, and the prophets. In the New Testament era, Paul, Peter, and James each called themselves slaves of God. Even this James here, who is the half-brother of the Lord, who is the James that wrote the letter or the book of James just a few books before in our New Testament, he didn't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. He said, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the same term, Jude expressed his humility. And he also expressed his authority since he was an honored slave of the Lord as those who were in the Old Testament. Now here is the comforting truth when you come across this phrase, bondservant of Jesus Christ. The people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves his slaves. Like if you're really struggling this morning, think, I guess I'm a slave of Jesus. You and I need to talk. They were happy. They longed. They found joy in knowing that they were a slave of the most gracious master, the most loving master, the most forgiving master this world has ever known. And don't forget it. Jesus is God's king. And as such, he is the rightful ruler At times when each of us is tempted and even taught to take offense or act affronted in the notion of yielding to someone else's authority. That's the world we live in. It's all around us. It even creeps into the church. That for us to be under someone's authority is an anathema in a free and libertine culture. Like, no one's my master. But that's a lie. Because for us who know Jesus Christ, we willingly put ourselves in the shadow of his leadership and say, Lord Jesus, lead me, guide me, make a way for me. Our propensity is to play the rebel, to answer to no one, to throw off any and all vestiges of authority. And perhaps that is why right out of the gate, Jude identifies himself as Jesus' servant. He's modeling Christian maturity for every reader. Strikingly, by the third word in the English text, he says that he is a slave, a bondservant. And he does it with so much matter-of-fact joy that it should encourage us in our walk with the Lord. 
Never think it is wrong or demeaning to identify yourself as one who is under authority. That is the best place for us to live, under the authority of Jesus Christ. So now we know who wrote the letter. We're going to read whom he wrote the letter to. And that's the last part of verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I can't get this sentence out of my head this week. Like I have thought about what Jude wrote here so much this week that it has not escaped me. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. First, we notice that he didn't write to a specific church, like the church in Rome or Galatia or Corinth. Nor did he write to a person like Paul wrote to Timothy or Titus or Philemon. No, he, he wrote what is referred to as a Catholic letter. And before you start saying, oh no, here we go with that. No, the word Catholic means general. The general community. The common community. Jude wrote this letter to the common community of the faith. He wrote to believers in general. But second and more importantly, who are these believers that he wrote this letter to? They are who we are. Listen, if all you leave here today is remembering how he refers to these believers, you will leave blessed. If that's all you get. So who are these believers that are blessed? They are called, beloved, and kept. They are called, beloved, and kept. If that doesn't shake your world in a good way, I'm not sure what will. You are called, beloved, and kept. Like if you wanted to market something at Hobby Lobby, you know how they do all the the signs that you can put up with the spiritual sayings? Just have have a sign you can hang on your wall that says, called, beloved, kept. Because if that is all that we ever know about our salvation... If Jude 1b, the last part of that first verse, was all that God ever gave for us to know about our relationship with him, that is enough to give us comfort that will last forever. That we are called, beloved, and kept. So let's look at what these words mean, these phrases mean. First, we're called. God's people are so... Because of God's choice. Some of you, your mind is already spinning. God is the initiator. He's the first pursuer. And he's the lover. He calls and we come. I know for some this truth that God calls, which is referred to as the doctrine of election, causes some of you to squirm. And not just a little bit. I've had many conversations with some of you, both corporately and Bible studies and Sunday schools and things, classes and things like that, and also very individual, personal conversations about this doctrine. 
And I'm just going to tell you up front, it's a hard doctrine to understand. It is. It's hard because from our perspective, it seems like this word means that God does everything, we do nothing. And so what does that mean about the whosoever of the gospel of John 3.16? It's hard to figure out that in God's sovereign plan, He's doing something on His end. And how does that reconcile with what we do on our end to believe by faith in what Jesus has done? Because if God is sovereignly calling and I have a free will, it just doesn't seem to connect. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Both of those truths exist. God's sovereign call and man's free will. They both exist in harmony together. They're not in opposition with each other. They don't fight against, against each other. But I can't tell you because I don't have the mind of the Lord what exactly it all means. I just know what the Scriptures teach, that we're called, that we're beloved, and that we're kept. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That those who are called are beloved and kept and nobody can take us out of the hand of Jesus because we are secure in him forever. And when we try to reconcile doctrines that are above our pay grade and we fight over it and we divide over it, we bring sorrow to the church. We bring sorrow to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We bring sorrow to our Lord. And so I'm just going to preach the Scriptures as they are written. This calling doesn't negate our response to believe. It works in perfect harmony with the mystery of the plans and mind of the Lord. I came across a quote this week that I think puts everything in the perspective for me when it comes to these hard things, especially concerning the doctrine of election. Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, about 150 years ago this very thing. He says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Like, I don't get it, but I know it. I know what the scriptures teach. And it is a great comfort to me to know that God has a special, peculiar love for a sinner like me. Jude says that we are called and we are beloved in God the Father. Do you hear the heart of God for you in that phrase, 
beloved by the Father? Listen, God's heart for you is full of love. The word can also be translated as dear or dear ones. Those who are beloved by God are his dear ones. I'm not sure who needs to hear this today, but if you are a child of God through faith in his son, you are beloved by God. You are beloved by God. You are beloved by God. Your circumstances do not dictate how God feels about you. Your performance does not dictate to God how he feels about you. You are beloved by God. He loves you with a love that you will never experience by anyone else or anything else. You are beloved by God. Know that you are loved. In this world where people are desperately searching for their place, desperately wanting to know their identity, destined, or searching desperately to know how they belong, if they would know that by faith in Jesus Christ, that they would have a love for them, that is special and unique, reserved for his children, that they would be beloved by God. That would change everything in the way they live their lives. And for me, as a child of God who often struggles with living for God and following God and obeying God in every area that I know that I should, to know that I am beloved by God, end of story, reminds me that there is nothing that I can do to wreck this special love that God has reserved for me. But it also compels me to rise up and to say, Jesus, because you are my Lord, I want to love you and follow you and live for you and obey you. You are beloved in God the Father and you are kept for Jesus Christ. Those whom God has called to himself are loved by him and kept until the day of salvation. You are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, some of your versions, whether it's the NIV, um, whatever version you have, it might have and kept by Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we either kept for Jesus Christ or by Jesus Christ? Here's the truth. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because the emphasis is on the word kept. And what is Jude trying to say to these believers? God is keeping you secure forever until the day of Jesus Christ. The grace of God that called believers to faith will sustain them to the end. The grace of God that called believers will sustain them. The emphasis on God's grace does not cancel out our responsibility. In Jude 21, we read, keep yourselves in the love of God. So we're kept, as Jude says, for Jesus Christ. And in Jude 21, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. The readers are exhorted to keep themselves in God's love. And what does that teach me? It teaches me and reminds me that God's grace does not promote human passivity or laxity. It's not like I read that we are kept for Jesus Christ and say, okay, doesn't matter what I do. No, big picture, I know that the relationship that God started with me, that I entered into by faith in His Son, 
the relationship that I am being sanctified in and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that God, by His grace, will keep going to the very end. It's a great, wonderful truth of assurance. It should stir us as His readers to concerted action. Nonetheless, the ultimate reason believers will persevere against the inroads of the intruders that were coming into the church, teaching a false gospel, is the grace of God set upon us in His love whom He called. Bible teacher Dwight Pentecost writes, the knowledge of God's calling, loving, and keeping brings believers assurance and peace during times of apostasy. This greeting to these believers who were under attack were deep words of assurance. Put yourself in their sandals. People have crept in to their assembly, teaching a false gospel, teaching contrary truths. The the elder or teacher would stand up and, and teach the word, teach the doctrines of Jesus Christ, teach what it means to be in a relationship with him. And then people were creeping in and said, you know what, that, that knowledge is not the true knowledge. It's not the hidden knowledge that God wants us to have, to feel and to be and to belong. No, we're, we're missing it. And Judah saying, stand firm in the faith, keep yourself in the love of God who called you. His greeting reminds them that they are who they are because of God's special keeping love. Nothing will change their standing and no one can take that standing from them. Those whom the Father put in the hand of Jesus cannot be taken out. And that's just as true for us today. You are called should be loved. Loved and kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are born again through faith in the Son are secure until the very end. As a result, stay strong in the faith. Even when it seems like your faith is under attack, stand strong in the faith. And then in verse 2, he, he gives the blessing. It's really a prayer that he offers for these believers. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, or notice what he says in this blessing. Mercy, peace, and love. Jude prays for these believers for mercy, for peace, and love. And oh, that we receive this mercy, this mercy of not receiving what we deserve. And oh, that we receive the love, the true selfless love that flows from the heart of God. And oh, that we would receive the peace that surpasses all understanding. And Jude writes, may it be multiplied to you. That word multiplied means to increase. It's not that we just have it once, receive it once, and be like, okay, I got all that I need. Jude prays for these believers in the midst of their attacks. May God's love and peace and mercy be multiplied to you. May it increase and grow and abound in your life. Church, we are called, beloved, and kept. 
Now you get the sense that what Jude prays for is exact, exactly what these believers needed as they were under attack, much like how we are under attack today by a world that is constantly declaring that what we believe is not true. Did you ever feel like sometimes you hear so much noise from the world about that we're wrong, that we've missed it, that these are lies or fables or stories? That you even just begin to entertain for a second, boy, what if I'm wrong about this? Because there's so much noise from the outside. And I know for me, if I am out of fellowship with God in the sense of not connecting with Him in the Word and through prayer and with other believers, it is so easy to believe what I hear on the outside. And yet, by God's grace, He comes to us and says that we are called, beloved, and kept. And so church, may we rest in the preserving love of God, trusting that the Lord will protect us from the attacks of this world. And may we also manifest this love to those who do not know the love of Christ, that they may see the mercy that they too can know if they believe in Him. And so let's pray and ask God to help us for that very endeavor.